Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Hey, welcome back everybody to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're currently reading step number four on obedience. And we're picking up this evening on page 83, if you have the text, uh, paragraph 45 at the bottom of the page. And uh, John Climacus has been discussing here, in particular in these paragraphs, the relationship between the directee or the young monk and his elder, the relationship uh, between the, the two of them and what is to be guarded and protected and the value of it. And so with paragraph 45, he writes, spiritually show God your faith in your father and your sincere love for him. And God in unknown ways will suggest to him that he become attached to you and kindly disposed toward you, just as you are well disposed toward him. So both are to work to uh, develop a, a kind of a love and devotion for each other, that it's uh, not just a utilitarian kind of relationship, you know, that uh, this young monk goes to his father to get advice. And he's much more than an advice giver that uh, both are seeking the same end. And it's because of the depth of his love for God that, uh, and his love for the one that he's directing that he's able to give the care and attention that others in the world typically wouldn't give, no matter how dedicated they are to their work. That uh, the father's devotion makes him desire the salvation, the well-being, the virtue of the one in his care as much as he desires it for himself. And so this is what is to be cultivated. And one of the reasons that John stresses this and so many of the other fathers is that this relationship is often one that is attacked. And there can be little things that arise between father and son, if you will, or father and daughter that, uh, that undermines that relationship, little disagreements, you know, something about the other's character, the way they behave in certain circumstances that can create a little rift or negative thoughts and feelings uh, enough to uh, lead one not to embrace counsel given or break down the relationship altogether. And so one isn't to take this for granted in either direction that is to be protected in every way. Number 46. He who exposes every snake shows that he has real faith, but he who hides them still wanders in trackless waste. So exposes every snake. Uh, I think what John is talking about here and certainly how the other fathers speak of it would be our thoughts that uh, the way to be healed from whatever might come to our mind. And sometimes it comes upon us uh, very quickly, as we've often talked about, but also can be somewhat disturbing. The way to find feel healing from it is to bring it to light, to be able to, uh, to uh, reveal it to one's spiritual father or one's confessor, not to, to hold on to it or try to control it on one's own. So certainly in our prayer, this kind of unceasing prayer that we've talked about with the Jesus prayer, is the most effective means of overcoming it. But also obedience is to lay before one's uh, spiritual father all the thoughts that come. 
and to see that as a kind of obedience uh, as part of that relationship in order that the healing balm might be given, the counsel might be given that helps a person overcome it and or, or at least not to become overly anxious about it, to give them the tools that they need to be able to move forward. Okay. Number 47, a man will know his brother's love and his genuine charity when he sees that he mourns for his brother's sins and rejoices at his progress and gifts. Wow, this is a difficult one because sometimes we can bring ourselves to mourn over the sins of others, but uh, rejoicing over the good things that happen to people. Sometimes we can be very stingy in that regard, you know, that we feel, you know, in our lack of self-esteem or maybe too high, esteeming ourselves too high, that we don't want others uh, to experience good things, that we often will uh, sort of establish our identity in comparison to the other rather than having that identity be rooted in our relationship with God. And so to see ourselves as sons and daughters of God, that our worth, our value, comes not through what we accomplish, how skilled we are, what talents we have, but what God has given us, the fullness of his love. And this should transform the way that we see ourselves, but also the way that we, we see others, that we mourn for them when they're suffering, uh, in any way, but especially spiritually, and that we rejoice with them when we see them growing in virtue. And so it means letting go of, you know, any kind of animosity, memories of, you know, times that they've hurt us or said things that have been wounding and uh, purifying the mind and the hearts so that we're free from that. And we can look upon, look upon them seeing beyond any weaknesses or flaws or things that they've done to us in the past. Any thoughts or comments so far on these first few little sayings? Okay. Number 48. He whose will and desire and conversation is to establish his own opinion, even though what he says is true, should recognize that he is sick with the devil's disease. And if he behaves like this only in conversation with his equals, then perhaps the rebuke of his superiors may heal him. But if he acts in this way, even with those who are greater and wiser than he, then his malady is humanly incurable. Humanly incurable. I think that's an important little addition there. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a beautiful uh, paragraph that uh, you know, one of the things that we've often talked about that we cling to is personal opinion and judgment and how Philip Neary would touch his forehead and say, you know, that this is what we are to mortify, mortify the reason, you know, our judgment, our opinion, our view of things, uh, that that's often the most difficult form of mortification for us, not to speak up, to criticize, to correct. And uh, often, again, such things are driven by ego more than they are the desire for truth. And, uh, and when they are driven, I think, by a kind of conceit or pride, then the, the, you know, when one begins to criticize or correct one who is in, in a greater position than they are, or a superior spiritual father, then uh, he says, no, there's nothing that can cure this malady, nothing human 
uh, can cure it, that it's only by the mercy of God that he's able to break through that kind of conceit and pride that exists within us. When we have so hardened our hearts or become so fixed in the way that we see things that what others say cannot penetrate that, then we can be in, to put it simply, in a world of hurt, that when we're unable to hear what others have to say, uh, then we're beyond correction. And, uh, and then at the, you know, we have nowhere to go uh, for someone to, to lift us out of that. And it really does require the, the grace of God to intervene. And sometimes it is through suffering, you know, through experiencing the consequences of that very clearly that then we can break free of it. Um, and so to cultivate this in our days is very important. And, and I think it means cultivating also silence and stillness in our day-to-day -day life in general, that we become much more aware of what's going on in our minds and our hearts. So it slows us down before we speak. And uh, often if we can even have a, a few moments before we respond to something. I remember watching little videos of John Paul II whenever he would be questioned. Sometimes he would not immediately respond to the question, but really in a kind of prayerful fashion, allow himself to, to think about what the other was saying. And uh, that always, you know, even back then, it seemed sort of a prudent thing to me or a sign of his wisdom that he's not feeling that pressure to immediately respond to what the other is saying. And sometimes on an emotional level, we will react very quickly to what another says. If we think that it's wrong or we have something to add and or we start thinking about our response uh, while, while they're talking, then we cease to listen to them and we lose sight of the person altogether. And we're sort of contemplating how we're going to respond, what we want to have heard. And uh, so if we're able to slow things down, it helps us both in terms of what we do say to others, but I think it also helps us to listen fully uh, to what they say. Daniel and then Anthony. So Daniel, is this your comment here? The blog, Glory to God for All Things, had a great article on this title, Saving Knowledge and Blessed Ignorance, right? I remember reading that pretty recent, correct? Pretty recently it was up. What we don't know, we can be more important than what we do know. And what we know is much less than we would like to think, right? That we're not as bright as we think we are. And we certainly don't see all things about circumstances. That we have blind spots, we have hard spots. Uh, they prevent us from seeing the truth. And so even if our opinion and judgment is well-formed, there can be massive parts of things that elude us in our relationships with others and our perception of reality. And if we aren't humble enough to see that, then we're going to find ourselves at times fighting these battles with others only to realize that we are in the wrong or that we did not see things correctly. And that the, the, those conversations do not bear fruit then. And sometimes the relationships break down precisely because we do that. We aren't treating the other with a kind of dignity and being able to listen to them fully. Anthony, on one hand, I think he's right. On the other hand, does one have a responsibility to try and share specialized knowledge for guidance 
to a perceived good or guidance away from a bad thing, but with discretion in how you propose the idea. Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, among the fathers, that there is this sense of the value of silence and that silence speaks in a more powerful way than our words, that our words are always going to be limited and you know how we've often talked about silence from the Carthusian uh, perception of it, or at least how they've written about it, that it allows God to speak a word that is equal to himself. That when we silence the mind and the heart and we aren't confining what God communicates to us through the limits of our reason, imagination, our understanding, we are opening ourselves to him on a deeper level. And I think that's true in our relationship with, with others. It's more how we live our life, the deeds that we perform, the way that we love, that communicates most fully, the things that are mo most important and most enduring. And so you'll hear these stories of you know, people coming, uh, sometimes out of curiosity to talk to one of the monks, and he remains silent the whole time. He doesn't say a word to them. And when asked then by one of his disciples, why didn't you say anything to them when they came? He said, well, if they're not edified by the, my silence, they're not going to be edified by my words. You know, if they don't see uh, on some level the, the value of that, what is it that I'm going to communicate to them or be able to communicate to them that has a lasting value for them? And, uh, Again, I think this is a hard thing to imagine or to embrace because communication, I think, has become everything for us. The, you know, in, or information too, and immediate access to information, and we we know that this doesn't necessarily bring about communion. And uh, in fact, sometimes it can become a barrier to that. As much as we think that it connects us to each other, uh, sometimes it it doesn't. You know, sometimes we get fixated upon things that are of lesser importance or aren't willing to do the groundwork. Uh, and in, in terms of the conversion of life for ourselves, repentance, fostering the virtue that allows us to engage people in the way that God would desire or to say the things that God would desire us to say. So, the, you know, certainly I think about things from the perspective of the life of a priest. And so when you think of things like uh, in the confessional or spiritual direction or preaching, that uh, all of those things are prepared for, not through the study of books, although that, that, that certainly helps, uh, but it's, they're prepared most of all through one's prayer life, that intimacy with God. And so that you are listening to what the person is saying uh, through that filter of your relationship with God and able to hear the things that he desires you to hear and to address. And, uh, and so, you know, I think often what makes preaching so ineffective at times isn't necessarily the, the, the gifts of the speaker or the lack thereof but the lack of prayer and an intimacy with God. You know, how does one understand the word of God outside of this deep and abiding relationship with him? 
where we can hear his word in such a way that it's not being filtered first through our reason and understanding, but rather it is heard in the, again in the way that he desires to hear it. Uh, and sometimes in a way that it's piercing and penetrating. And perhaps that is what we are to communicate, not necessarily in a harsh way either, but maybe what uh, comes forward from the gospel for us or the other readings is, is such that, you know, we aren't simply uh, parroting what we've read in some commentary, that it's arising out of someplace deeper. And that speaks to a deeper place within the other. And so, you know, when priests are thinking about hearing confessions or when they are thinking about preaching, you know, the, the, the first place they should go is on their knees before the Lord, uh, uh, before the Blessed Sacrament, in order that, again, their specialized knowledge is, again, isn't something they've read from some book. You know, it's their, their specialized knowledge is this experiential knowledge of God that has come through real encounter and the experience of love. Now, you know, certainly in day-to-day -day work, you know, people are educated in special fields and have to engage each other in conversation and think things through. And so, of course, you know, that, that is the typical way of uh, communicating with each other. But I think when it comes to our life as Christians, how we evangelize, it has to begin and go through our own hearts if it's going to bear fruit uh, in the lives of others or if it's going to be heard in the way that it needs to be heard. Daniel. Sorry, I can't type this fast enough. Okay. But, um, but yeah, but I was... It's funny because I think it's more what you were talking about there. Um, it's just something I was thinking about that we spend so much time thinking, you know what I mean? And sometimes talking and it's, it's like, um, and I think a lot of the way that the modern world is set up, like our work is often done on computers, you know? And if anything, we, if anything, we don't move enough that it's like a very disembodied, almost like existence, you know, like the mental, the all that type of stuff our thoughts are who we are or something you know like all the the emphasis is always put on this it's almost a very anti-incarnate mm -hmm. type of existence and reality versus so like i think the comment back to what anthony said too on like don't we have somewhat of an obligation to almost like say or do something i don't know but i think that sometimes what we can do is just by like trying to make those things more real in our life you know what i mean like is more impactful than a, you know a ton of fancy words that could be said right that's right you know i think it's you know often like spiritual fathers like this speak out of an experience of the trials or the crosses that they've borne the spiritual battle that they've waged and so it's coming again from this very deep place within them and not something, again, that they read in the Philoclea or in St. John Climacus even. You know, it's there, I think we can sort of pick up the broad strokes of things, but it's through engaging in the life itself that we come to understand what John is talking about or the writers in the Ever, Ever Catinas 
that we read on Mondays. And, uh, and so it is kind of, of a shifting of gears and the way that we think about our life. And sometimes something will wake us up to that. You know, there was one time where I got sick and didn't know what it was for a long time and was sort of debilitated from it. Turned out not to be terribly serious, but you know, it was just, it had hobbled me and, sl but sl and slowed me down to a stop. And I went to my parents to try to sort of yank myself out of it if I could. And, and you know, I was working hard, so I hadn't gone outside for a long period of time. So they lived in the country and it was kind of a weird thing for me because I'd just walk up and down the road, but you suddenly become aware you know, when all those things are sort of pulled away of like the wind blowing through the leaves and the trees and the trees moving back and forth or the, you know, birds, you know, flying by or the, the chirping of the birds or, you know, dogs barking, things such as that. You become much more aware of once yourself and also what's going on internally as well as what's going on around you. And uh, I found... Uh, over time as, as a priest, not just from experiences like that, but you know, when we become overscheduled, when things become frenetic, then we often aren't seeing and hearing the things that we need to see and hear, uh, or being attentive to the people that we need to be attentive to. Uh, you know, for years I'd uh, lived and worked at a, a place that were, you know, tons of people in and out throughout the course of the day. And sometimes you could walk past people and, uh, and if you're inattentive, you might miss something radically important. Because if a person comes in suffering, they're not necessarily going to jump up and say, hey, can you help me? You know, they might be undone by what trial they're going through. And it's really, I think, only a soul that is still, whose heart, one whose heart is not agitated, can be attentive to what is not said and yet is being communicated loud and clear by the person who's standing right before them. We talk too much. And, you know, I've often mentioned Cardinal Seurat's book here, uh, The Power of Silence. And I think uh, in terms of a contemporary work, it's uh, one of the best things I've come across and the most needed. You know, when we're going through a very difficult time, you know, certainly throughout the world as a whole, but within the church, you know, I've often felt that his work is prophetic, that in the midst of this and all the talk about new evangelization, things like that, he writes this book on the power of silence, that our evangelization begins with ourselves, and that evangelization takes place in the silence of prayer, and cultivating that in such a deep way that we begin to live our existence out of that silence, which is actually intimacy with God. Like, how are we going to communicate to others what we do not know and have not experienced? And certainly a lot of people have read the book and love it and, and have been transformed by it. But in, internalizing and interiorizing the message of that is a much different thing. It means reordering our life so that stillness and silence can, can emerge. Okay. All right. So why don't we move on to paragraph 49. He who is not submissive in speech clearly will not be so in act either. 
for he who is unfaithful in little is also unfaithful in much and is intractable. He labors in vain and he will get nothing from holy obedience but his own doom. So not submissive in speech then means he's not going to be so indeed that the small thing is being able to control our tongue, which is sort of amusing because it's not that small of a thing. I think when we think about struggling to do that, you know, to hold fast and not constantly be uh, harping on others and, or just chattering that, uh, and if we're not faithful there, you can pretty much guarantee that we aren't going to be faithful indeed. And so he says then, when this is true, holy obedience uh, brings about his doom, that he's laboring in vain. And this is the, the pitiful thing. Uh, and the person who embraces the life of obedience and yet does not live it. You know, what a pitiable existence because the whole reason one would go to a monastery is precisely to live in obedience and to have that form and shape one uh, and foster humility but to live in this kind of intractable state, as he describes, you know, where one is entrenched in one's view of things and uh, unable to hear what the other is saying, especially one superior, then what is the value of one's life spent like that with all the rigors of the monastic life, if obedience is not going to be uh, one of the most prized of, of, of the virtues. And, um, if you remember, obedience comes from ab adere, you know, it's uh, to, to be able to hear uh, and, uh, you know, to hear in a particular kind of way, to listen. And so, again, it's not like a kind of slavishness or, uh, you know, we're a kind of blind obedience, but the one that arises out of truly hearing what the other has to say and hearing it. Uh, as coming from this true source from which it flows, from God. And again, this is why I think that relationship between the spiritual father and son or daughter is so important that, you know, where, where there is this genuine love and respect for the other, then both are going to be listening to each other, but also to God on this very deep level. It takes an obedient soul to foster obedience in the other. So you would never make a novice master out of someone who's never been obedient and never uh, embraced the role of the community. It could be the, would, would be the worst thing that you could do for the community as a whole because it would destroy it. They, they would imitate that disobedience. So it would always be the one who has lived the, the life as perfectly as they can. And especially when it involves correction, uh, I think I've mentioned before, St. Philip Neri having this office within the community, and a lot of religious communities had it as well, where a person would be given the task of being the corrector <laughs> and uh, not an enviable position. And, uh, but again, the one who would be chosen to do that, to, to, you know, when they see somebody not following the rule of the house, or the community that they would go aside with them and talk to them about it. And so they would have to be the gentlest person, but also have this deep experience of obedience in their life so that they could communicate it in such a way 
that it wouldn't lead a person into despair or despondency or make them uh, leave altogether or become more entrenched in, in their behavior. And you hear some stories of these fellows, you know, agonizing over whether or not they, they were loving enough in giving that counsel or that correction. Bridget McGinley, how does one reconcile and practice the advice in the Psalms and other biblical verses like, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man with the virtue of obedience and trust in the confessor elder, especially if there have been grave misunderstandings in the past? Right, well, you know, we, ha we have been reading, especially uh, we read a great deal in the Avrikatinos about this, that uh, while the revelation of one's thoughts uh, is essential in the spiritual life, that one would not do that indiscriminately, that one would have to be sure that the person with whom you were doing that uh, has the gift of discernment, that they have led this holy life and are seeking to pursue God in their life. And so one would not easily enter into this kind of relationship uh, with, without examining that, because great harm, the, the father said, could be done through this, not, not, not simply in, you know, giving, you know, worthless advice or advice that is not helpful, but it could be destructive to the individual himself or herself, that uh, what, what it can be said or what they could be told to do or how they're taught to understand certain things could affect their relationship with God and the way that they view others. It can, could corrupt the mind and the heart. And so the way that we, you know, how does one reconcile it? We don't in the sense that uh, we have to be discerning and discriminating uh, in terms of who we would engage in this life of obedience with and who we would entrust our thoughts and our conscience to. Uh, and so there's kind of responsibility, I think, in terms of our praying and searching for someone to do that. And I think it's why we're blessed also to have the fathers to turn to to guide us, especially if we find you know, spiritual elders, directors to be lacking in our own day. At least we have an abundance of the fathers to guide us. Uh, and so, you know. I think this is why certain things broke down again in, in the past uh, because of how obedience was looked at. You know, sometimes it was slavish. Sometimes those in positions of authority could be manipulative or they could be narcissist and they could seek to break down the personality of the individuals under their care. And not necessarily in a, even in a conscious way, but in a way to build themselves up they would seek to tear others down and to destroy their identity and their personality. Whereas, you know, the spiritual life is not meant to do that. It's to perfect who we are as individuals and to cultivate the virtues that allow us to become fully human and to allow our personality to become something more and more beautiful. And uh, I think when those in positions of authority don't see that, they, they can be the most destructive of individuals. Okay. All right, number 50. If anyone 
has his conscience in the utmost purity in the matter of obedience to his spiritual father, then he daily awaits death as if it were sleep, or rather life, and is not dismayed, knowing for certain that at the hour of his departure, not he, but his director, will be called to account. So again, you know, how do we understand sayings like this unless we understand the relationship between spiritual father and spiritual child as a relationship of love and devotion, being well disposed to the other, that the spiritual father in receiving that obedience of their, their son then also takes responsibility for them. And it is, it's not as if it's no account uh, whether or not that relationship works out or what they say is the right thing to say or whether it was said with uh, charity or lack of charity. All those things have great weight and the spiritual father will have to give an account not only for himself but for the one in his charge. Again, you know, I think if those in those positions or those who are confessors uh, and, or preachers or whatever it might be, parents as well, you know, because they're the fundamental teachers of the faith to their, their children, that it shows them the weight of that, the weight and the significance of it. Above all other things, it's not as though other things are unimportant, you know, work or whatever it might be that one has to engage in to provide for one's family. But what is more important than the spiritual formation of one's child? And so similarly, John is saying here that nothing is more important than that for the spiritual father. And in taking upon himself that responsibility, that he is given an ultimate responsibility of giving an account, not only for himself, but for the other. And so, again, this shifts our, our view of obedience altogether. You know, again, it's not a, a slave master relationship. And we, we see here John telling us it brings a kind of ultimate freedom, freedom from fear of death. In fact, you know, one looks at that as, you know, the moment to, to enter into the fullness of life. And so it has no hesitation or anxiety about it all, that living in this obedience, living that well, uh, is a kind of promise that holds a promise of life within it. And if, again, if we saw that truly, then I think we would want to cultivate it in our lives and want to have it in our lives. Angela. Um, regarding this um, passage, I'm wondering if you have any words of comfort for parents who maybe they haven't been responsible enough in forming their children's spiritual environment, but who have just turned away um, from the church uh, with no hope, years of prayer, no hope uh, or change. Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of comfort for parents? Well, I think there's always something incredibly powerful about prayer and one's personal sacrifices on behalf of the other. Again, we live in this radical solidarity with each other both in our struggle with sin, but also radical solidarity in Christ through the life of virtue. And so within families in particular, I've often quoted a modern elder as saying that if there's one prayer 
within the family. It can elevate the entire family. And so if one's children are, if they're struggling or if they've moved away from the faith, you know, as they've, you know, reached teen years or 20s or even beyond, that the, the prayers of one's parents, you know, the, have the deepest love for their children are also going to be the most powerful. The one who comes to mind immediately is St. Monica. You know, she traveled, she followed her son, you know, wherever he went and, you know, was constantly praying for him, shed tears on his behalf, on his behalf you know, tried to draw him away from, you know, this life of vanity that he was pursuing and a lack of virtue. And eventually, you know, uh, and this is what we hear John saying about the, the, like the novice attributing everything to the prayers of his spiritual father, no matter what good he does, he always says it's because of the prayers of his father on his behalf. And the same is true for parents, mother and father, that those deep prayers, penances taken on behalf of their children can allow God to go where we cannot go and then through our words. And so this is why in the paragraph before, you know, it's a malady that is humanly incurable. As parents, you might not be able to do anything to cure your children in terms of what you say or do. But through your prayer life uh, and prayer on their behalf, uh, it can open up a place for God's grace to act there for them. You know, either through your personal example, you know, your love for them, how you engage them, that God then can go to the place that needs to be healed or that draws them out of, of a darkness that they're experiencing or allows you to speak a word in a, at an opportune time that opens a door for them. And so, you know, our greatest trust in our spiritual life and in, in, in the spiritual welfare of others is always in God. You know, that he's always going to be the one who brings about that deep transformation. St. Ambrose, Daniel wrote, St. Ambrose wrote to St. Monica, God's time will come the bishop assured her, but she has, was so persistent, he finally urged her, go now, I beg you. It's not possible that the son of so many tears should perish. It's, a, it's always a, a beautiful thought. The son of tears, you know, a mother who constantly wept on his behalf. Eventually, those tears brought cleansing to her son. Okay. All right. 51, if without constraint, anyone receives some task from his father and in doing it suffers a stumble, he should not ascribe blame to the giver, but to the receiver of the weapon. For he took the weapon for battle against the enemy, but has turned it against his own heart. But if he forced himself for the Lord's sake to accept the task, though he previously explained his weakness to him who gave it, let him take courage, for though he has fallen, he is not dead. So what is taken up in obedience and the weapons used in the spiritual battle, even if they're used wrongly, and uh, even if the person falls, 
or directs those weapons against himself, inflicts self-harm through it, that he's not to be driven to despair, that insofar as he's living in obedience and always has that, that path back to the counsel of the spiritual father, he's not dead. So however great the fall might be, whatever sin might be committed, he need no, have no fear because he always has one there to lift him up. He's not been conquered by, by the sin. And, you know, this is why we'll find Climacus talking about the dangers of the solitary life, that when one is living alone uh, and without the, uh, the strength of the community or the strength of a spiritual father, that uh, when one falls, there might be no one there to pick you up. And then, you know, then a person could be lost in that darkness perpetually. And so being under the guidance of, of another or living, even if it's in the smallest community, uh, I think John would see as certainly the, the best path, that the rarer path would be one who would enter into a, a greater, more absolute kind of solitude. And that would have had, you know, God would have had to call them to, to that distinctive life. You know, and often through the guidance and counsel of their spiritual father or the abbot of a community to take that upon themselves to be a hermit, that it would have to be seen that they have the virtues that could sustain them within that life. So the safer life for all of us is to the life of community. Okay. 52. If I have forgotten to set before you, my friends, this sweet bread of virtue, I saw their men obedient in the Lord who insulted and dishonored themselves for God's sake, so that having prepared themselves in this way, they might get used to not quailing before insults coming from others. So those who actively work to overcome their self-conceit, you know, that this kind of false image that uh, we can develop over time. And often again, that we aren't aware of, the, uh, of it developing, but this sense of you know, our accomplishments or our growth in the spiritual life or our value, uh, you know, that it can take over and a kind of conceit of knowledge can begin to develop. We think we know ourselves. And so we think we can know everything about the other person and tell them what to do as well. And so, uh, insulting themselves or acknowledging and constantly bringing before their own minds, their own weaknesses and failures, acknowledging the dishonor that they often bring to themselves, then frees them when they are insulted by another. The, the little phrase is a good one here, uh, used to not quailing before insults. You know, the sort of whining in the face of, of, of the insults of others or complaining or letting out a cry every time somebody says something harsh to us. You know, when we have this kind of clear view of our own poverty, an honest view of ourselves, then when somebody says something to us, you know, that either points a finger at that what is true, or even if it's not true, then we know in some way we've, we've probably done far worse than what they are accusing us of doing. So it provides a kind of freedom. Now, 
you know, is that a good path for everyone? Maybe not, you know, that because there could be a kind of self-hatred that would develop. And uh, I think, you know, we have, there has to be a kind of understanding in that practice. It's a kind of discipline that might not be meant for everyone. But I think on a basic level, you know, the daily examination of conscience uh, and, you know, internalizing the words, you know, we are unworthy servants, we've only done what is our duty, that we understand no matter what we've done, whatever good has been accomplished, it's all by the grace of God. And it's a response to the love that he's given us uh, that came not because we had worth, but purely because of his generosity. You know, the more that we internalize that, then the freer we become in the face of insults of the world or others. It doesn't take much, I think, to, to shift our emotions. You know, somebody can look at us funny or not say something. And in fact, John warns about this, you know, not entering into this kind of like fierce silence that really is communicating to somebody, I hate your guts or what you did really ticked me off or not dragging your feet with everything that you're asked to do where you're really communicating, I don't want to do that and you're imposing this on me. And uh, you know, so on all these different levels, we have to see how quickly our emotions can shift or the ways that we can be passive aggressive and seek to overcome it. 53, by resolving to make one's confession, the soul is thereby held from sinning as by a bridle. For what we do not confess, that we do fearlessly as though in the dark. So the practice, this often comes up in the group the, uh, and also in private discussions about the frequency of confession and sometimes the different counsel that's received, you know, whether or not that's a good idea or if it's, you know, someone, if you're being scrupulous. And I think the guidance of John here is, it pulls us away from, you know, kind of scrupulosity in that practice to acknowledging that the, the frequent confession sensitizes the conscience and allows us to see things with a greater clarity as well as avoid them. And so the more infrequent confession becomes, the more coarsened our conscience can be, the more accepting we can become of behaviors, attitudes, speech that we think are, are small things. You know, the, those little, you know, moments of irritability where we're sharp with someone. You know, if we haven't sensitized our conscience, you know, that's going to slip out of mind and uh, pass us by. And out of you know our conscious thoughts or, or awareness and so if we aren't confessing on a regular basis these kind of things then we become again more and more accepting of them within within ourselves but and then it deepens you know what we've when we become uh uh accepting of harsh thoughts then we become accepting of harsh words and then we become more accepting of outright, outright anger or rage towards the other. 
So in my mind, you know, I think what he says here is probably the clearest thing about the value of frequently confessing our thoughts or going to confession. That in this sense, there, there's really no small kind of sin, you know, because they, you know, if they're all, they all probably fit into one of the capital sins or the eight vices that the fathers speak of and can all lead to something greater. So we don't want to see anything as insignificant in our spiritual life and in our behavior. It might not throw us into despair and shouldn't, but I think being mindful of it and struggling with it becomes important. All right, any thoughts or comments? Okay, 54. When in the absence of the superior, we imagine his face and think that he is always standing by us and avoid every meeting or word or food or sleep or anything else that we think he would not like, then we have really learned true obedience. Base-born children regard the absence of their teacher as a joy, but legitimate ones think it a loss. So, you know, those who are low-born in the sense or acting that way, that don't have a clear sense of who they become in Christ, sons and daughters of God, then are going to rejoice either when the superior is away, just like a kid, children often do, when the teacher leaves the room, all of a sudden, you know, there's an uproar and they begin throwing things at each other and, you know, acting up. And, uh, and so they look forward to those little moments. But even as we get older, we don't change for <laughs> very much. And especially when we think about this in terms of our, not just imagining our, the face of our superior, but of God himself, the face of Christ. Uh, and again, this is the whole, uh, the whole idea behind the unceasing prayer, keeping before ourselves the face of our Lord and gazing upon him allows us to be able to discern with clarity, but in a quick way too, you know, where it's no labor to see what is the best thing to do, whether it's in uh, certain meetings with individuals, word, food, or sleep. We are able to see the path ahead because we've had our, our eyes focused upon Christ. It's when we lose that focus uh, and begin to even take a kind of joy in, you know, begin to live this, you know, sort of puerile kind of, of life where we regress, then it leads to a kind of destruction in the, in the spiritual life. It's always interesting to hear of them speak of these virtues that are cultivated as bringing about joy. Because I think so often the spiritual life is seen as something that's oppressive, you know, or that is constantly saying no to everything. When in reality, the, the cultivation of virtue, whether it's obedience or humility or the practice of prayer, you know, all of these things are, are saying yes to God, but also saying yes to ourselves. And, and in this, they bring us the greatest joy as human beings. When we begin to live in the way that God has called us to live, and we live in that fullness of grace, our life might be chaotic. There might be, you know, we might be experiencing great trials, 
but we again began living in that joy of the kingdom, experience a kind of invincible joy that no one can take away from us. And, you know, maybe, maybe we don't ex or haven't experienced it enough to desire it, but uh, to, to live in the peace and the joy of the kingdom, to see that as uh, something that we would want to pursue above all other things. And we often will settle for much less, you know, those little ways of escaping the harshness of life when what we are offered in Christ is the peace and the joy of the kingdom in every single moment. Ren. This is so true. Even in my dreams, uh-oh, don't talk about dreams publicly. <laughs> I find myself asking, what would my spiritual father think of this or that behavior? It becomes such a deeply established way of thinking. It's really beautiful and a blessing. Another reason that the habit of exposing one's thoughts to a father is so good, knowing that you will tell him everything, you will become more careful with what you allow yourself to do, such wise advice. Right. And I think seeing it as wise advice is, you know, part of the journey for us spiritually, you know, to see it as something that has great value and holds such promise within it, because we don't immediately experience it that way. And we are so used to hiding things, I think, in our shame that we carry around that burden and we don't know anything different or that things could be different. And this is why, you know, John saying, well, confess it and then be free of it and sensitize your conscience so that you can avoid it and come to know the joy of, uh, of the kingdom itself. Don't let yourself live in the darkness of that sin. Something far greater has been given you to live in, in the fullness of the light. And I think when we begin to experience it as something healing, when there's, it, it does become that balm to us, then there is a kind of hunger to talk about it. Deborah. So my biggest takeaway is of spiritual maturity, but does that maturity come from obedience or does the obedience need to come first to gain that spiritual maturity? Like the monk that was willing to except years of penance that would take spiritual maturity. But if he had that, he wouldn't have needed the penance or I'm missing something. Well, sort of the proverbial chicken or the egg, you know, which comes first kind of thing. You're killing me here with these questions. No, it's a good question. You know, I think God gives us the grace to see what we need to see at the moment. And so even when there is spiritual immaturity there, that he gives the light that is needed for us in that moment to see in our affliction, we need help. And that is often enough to then allow us to step towards a confessor or spiritual director. We might not know as that monk who took on the obedience and penance, what fruit it will bear, but there, you know, God gives the grace to take that first step or the necessary step. And so, you know, it's sort of an infant uh, 
you know, there's a kind of insecurity there too when they begin walking, you know, and the parents have to stand across from them, encouraging them or allow them or to help them to walk, you know, and then they gradually begin to have that trust, uh, not only that the parent is going to be there, but in what the parent is saying to them, you can do it, you know, kind of thing. And then, you know, eventually they'll uh, take multiple steps and then run across the room. And, uh, and so, you know, I think we all see, you know, this immaturity and we never really develop a full spiritual maturity. I think what the fathers want us to do is to see ourselves as children or to see the world with childlike eyes, to look upon God uh, with these childlike eyes, to cultivate Therese's view of spiritual childhood, you know, this dependence upon God as well as trust in his love. You know, the idea of spiritual childhood isn't anything new. I think we see it communicated in a different way here within the fathers, of course, within the context of the ascetical life, but it's cultivating this same kind of trust in God in, at every moment of our life and in every experience. Because if it's just raw asceticism, then again, you know, it can be just our being willful on a spiritual level, you know, thinking of ourselves as adults, you know, doing all these tough things. And, you know, God can slip out of the picture very quickly. And if we develop this sense of, you know, that we are spiritually mature, that we have it all figured, figured out, you know, that we always have to live, I think, in this kind of state of acknowledging our need for the counsel and the guidance of our spiritual father. see well that brings us to 8 30. so again you know a lot of wonderful comments and you know i hope i was able to engage them well enough but uh you always take us deeper you know with the questions and comments that you have so i'm grateful okay so we'll stop there uh and we'll pick up next week uh we're getting very close i got some good news today so at least i know uh uh, but I have to wait for the official announcement, but so things are coming soon here. So it's been a joyful week, a lot of good, nice things developing. Uh, Ren, before we stop, did you want to mention anything about the website or the Stripe and PayPal and all that? Yeah, just to say that it'll be coming really soon. So um, Philoclea is officially established as an LLC. Now, the, the important thing to, to see with that is that um, any uh, contributions made will be just that. They will be contributions, not tax-deductible donations. So, um, you know, uh, Father David, for all intents and purposes, will be a podcaster and will raise money as any podcaster would. Um, so that's an important thing to know. We'll be putting that very clearly on the website. Um, just so there's no misunderstanding with that. Um, but uh, really, so maybe just a quick explanation of that would be helpful. So initially we had thought that we would establish it as a nonprofit, but um, we realized there's a, an immense amount of complication involved in establishing the nonprofit, uh, you know, boards and public 
things and and really the only reason that donations have ever been solicited was to either support father david's um life and work at the oratory or to support his life and work now um and in addition um since I'll be working about 15 hours a week for Philokalia, also to pay me for that time. Um, so that's sort of why we're bringing in money. And we realize if that's the number one reason that we're asking for contributions, we really don't need to be a nonprofit. It's more of a, we want to be able to offer these things. And if you want to support the work, um, then you can make a contribution. Also, the enormously high um, tax deductible levels in America meant that for all of our American supporters, chances are, unless you're big time contributors, uh, you're not really going to be able to write it off anyway. So a lot of people were encouraging Father to just set it up as an LLC, saying they didn't really care about the nonprofit status anyway. So uh, there's an explanation uh, for why we went that direction. Um, it'll just keep things a lot more straightforward. Um, and then there was a little bit of an issue with one of our um, merchant services accounts, but we will have a very bare bones website up and running by the end of this week. And uh, no, that's not the finished product. Don't worry. Um, it's just something to get the contributions up and running and um, some sort of central place. But uh, I'll continue to work on that over the next, um, over the next, well, always but um, definitely to get it more substantial over the next six months. So um, that's about it. And if you have any questions for me that have to do with contributions or things like that, philokaliaministries at gmail.com is going gonna, is gonna to be the business email. And um, dabernethy at gmail.com would be continue to be the place that you would want to send any um, private like questions for father or communications because um, I see everything that comes to Philokalia. So that should be about all. So by the end of the week, we'll be sending an email to everyone. So. Very good. And thank you, Ren. And um, I am still going to work with a lawyer. I did find one through some friends who's going to do uh, pro bono work uh, uh, as part of his pro bono work for his firm. And, uh, but I have to work on their schedule. And so I'm going to explore the whole nonprofit route to see if it's worthwhile what he thinks. Uh, but it was, uh, I have to work on their schedule. And until he's able to work with me, we decided to move ahead. So I didn't want to leave Ren hanging for all that she, she does, but also even like the cost of websites and the, the podcasting and things like that, the yearly fees. Just want to keep up with that. Uh, before we close with our prayer to congratulate Brother Theophan here, who uh, just took the habit here, and uh, it's the Holy Transfiguration. Is that the? Uh, Holy Transfiguration, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Monastery California. in uh, Northern, Northern California. Right. So congratulations. You're in our prayers. Yeah, I need it. Pray for us. I'm glad you could join us. Yeah. So, my, my Wednesdays are the most free, actually, so I try Wonderful. to tune in periodically. Yeah, whenever you can. And tell Father Hilarion, is he still there? Oh, yeah. Tell him oh, yeah. hello, if you would. Okay. I will. I will. Wonderful. Great to see you. And the beard is coming along beautifully. See, <laughs> you just let it go. A year. Let it grow for a year. It comes in, I promise you. Well, I, I'm at over half a year now, so. There you go. Think what it's going to be in a year will be perfection. Uh, well, well, we'll see. Okay. Well, great to see you. Okay. 
So when we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And may God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.